0: today's reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 7 through 12 again I saw futility under the Sun there is a person without a companion without even a son or a brother and though there is no end to all his struggles his eyes are still not content with his riches who am I struggling for he asks and depriving myself of good things this, too, is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either fails, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.
1: Father, we thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us, and I thank you that as we step into uh, the passage today that we know that you are with us, that you are present. And so in that, Father, I ask that your spirit would be working. Father, I pray for the areas that it may be hard for us to lean into, that you would soften us. But, Father, mostly we ask that you would continue to be glorified in our time of worship together here today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we are continuing in our Idols series today. We have only two weeks left, and we're doing something a little different these last two weeks. Pastor Darrell and I are actually going to be preaching out of the same passage. Um, I'm today, and then he'll be doing next week. And the reason we're doing that is because as we lean into conversation about idolatry related to relationship, he and I represent a few different demographics, and so there are different things that we can lean into, different things that we maybe see in that way. Now, I've been counseled, I guess, by a couple people to uh, address the elephant in the room, that is me, before I kind of start to like, lay out where I am, where I'm coming from in this. And it's probably a good idea because I do get questioned a lot. Um, I've been called an anomaly and an enigma on multiple occasions and I've had to look those words up a few times because it, I can never tell if it's a compliment or not. Um, I've been called an oddity, cold, callous, tunnel vision, all of those things over the years, all by church people because I love my autonomy and my independence so much and always have. And in conservative Christian worlds, like what I grew up in, that's almost viewed as unchristian in some ways. It's like I'm releasing a part of my sanctification, or I'm pushing against God's good design. And I, from a young age, always struggled with this. Um, I often felt like I'm not going to be able to fall in line with what I'm being like groomed for or trained for or theologized for. I was kind of a strange kid in that I've always loved reading scripture. I think there's like really different ways that God um, really leans into some of us, relationship or music or different things. For me, I could study all day and be happy. So from a young age, I would just read, especially the Old Testament, over and over and over again. And I remember, you know, hearing in church like I'm being raised for like this biblical marriage. But then I would read the Bible and be like, where are the biblical marriages in the Bible that supposedly we're supposed to have? I mean, I don't want that. Like who do we even have to look at? You have Jacob, but then Leah, Rachel, Zilpa, Bilha. I don't want to be that. Um, you have David and someone he sexually assaults to become his wife and she's one of many. You have Solomon and hundreds of wives. You have Ruth, it's not romantic, guys. She gets married for survival, and Boaz probably has other wives and children already. You have Esther, who's trafficked in to become a wife. So I just remember hearing that and being like, I'm not feeling this. I'm not really, like, for following whatever this path is that I'm supposedly supposed to be on. I was always, like, really taken by, like, the loner-wanderer prophet types. (laughs) Like, I wanted to be Elijah or, like, Jeremiah or someone like that. So whatever this Disney-fied version that I was getting was just didn't, like, sit well. And I learned then over the years to, I don't know how to say it, like, apologetically soften the blow of communicating that... I loved my independence. Because oftentimes in those contexts, people's defenses would go up when I would share that. And I would end up then kind of having to deal with whatever insecurity or discomfort that they were feeling because of that. And I think that's because there are so many different things that we've determined biblical marriage or parenting is that isn't necessarily in the text, but we've almost done done that to the point that it's like a, Requirement for full Christian development to have those things. So many times I've heard from behind the pulpit, not here, because Daryl's great at this, but things like, you can never understand sanctification until you're married, or I can never understand love until I had children. Now, I do not doubt, because y'all are like doing the work that are in this stuff, that there are very unique. Ways that you experience levels of love and sanctification. But when you hear that repeatedly from the front, especially think about single people who desire those things because those are good things, that communicates a God that is withholding to you. And other people in church space then view you as other. So often being unmarried or even not having children in church means you're kind of treated as if you're in a holding pattern. Or the thing that I get the most is almost like I'm not as much of an adult. So church, all this to say, church is wonky space for single people. So this is, I know, feeling it? I'm I'm like hot too, okay? okay? All right, so this is where though, when we started Icon, we made some really intentional decisions. So, no singles group at ICON, which I have had to explain why so many times. Tried to be really patient about it. Singles groups, it's like the Wild West. It is a weird, it is, it is a weird, weird space because it's like the 22-something just out of college that thinks they know everything is thrust with the person who's been married and has children and you're shoved together like we're the same there, I know, Like, (laughs) okay, the thing is too, you don't want to know how much I deleted because I felt like I was ranting too much, but some people have had good singles groups experiences, like props to you, that's great, but I don't know how to explain them. It's kind of like, okay, if you watch The Office, when Michael thinks he's being helpful, but he's doing something that's like, just crossing that line where everyone feels uncomfortable, but you can't look away, like, it kind of, it kind of like, often feels like that. That's, like, the best I can say. So that's why we don't have singles groups at ICOM, <laughs> and we never will. Um, but other things we've been intentional with, and Pastor Daryl is so good at this, is just examples and illustrations from the front are never just for people who are married or have children. He's been so good and making sure that those are not the exclusive examples. And that might seem like a small thing. If you're sitting in here and you're married and have kids, you've maybe never even thought about that, but I can guarantee that our single people in this room have, and that makes us feel seen. When you separate in church, it also makes it harder to just build these natural relationships with one another. Married people, you're gonna forget that you need us. You're going to forget that your kids need us in their lives as well. And that a whole single person brings a lot of value and worth. We need each other. About 45% of the adult population is unmarried. And that's a stat that's very steadily rising. I've shared that with a lot of people this week, and everyone's been surprised by that, because that is not well represented in churches, especially in church leadership. When you're single in church leadership, people almost don't trust you as much. Um, it's like, almost concerning. I think that actually men who are single in church leadership deal with that more than women, though. So what was also interesting about this stat, as I was doing more reading for this, is you get a lot of faith-based articles about this rising percentage of unmarried adults, and they often view it as a problem or a spiritual crisis. It's this sign of moral decline, okay? Which, so I give you the great moral decline of the church right here. Um, But I mean, that's what I grew up hearing too. I, I heard a lot, the best way to make more disciples is to get married and have kids. That's what I heard all the time. So I'm a failure, guys, so, but um all that to say, just setting this up, single people often face this internal pressure from their spiritual community that diminishes their choices or functionally gives less value. So a growing number of single adults is not a sign of Jesus losing his grip, but it's often with this disdain for God's design or a rejection of how good family and children are. I get questioned a lot about this. I cannot begin to tell you how many times I've just have had to say, I'm not anti-marriage, I'm not (laughs) anti-children. But I think we almost, you know, in Christian spaces, this is a part of our salvation. I love it when my friends marry the right people. I care about y'all's marriages, that's why I ask about them. Um, I love your children, I love being able to give them my energy and focus. And then I go home where it's like quiet and everything is like right where I left it. So, yeah, it is the way to be, especially when you're like introverted, right? So just what is it then about this where we feel threatened by this, by people who are living different lives? And why do we often then kind of double down and justify ourselves or conflate the others almost in opposition to us? when it's not. This is why in community, we need to be better at being mindful of those around us and noting that differences in familial status or relationship status is not a weakness in the church, but it's actually a strength. So, how do we wade through where we might have idolatry that's keeping us from engaging and seeing each other in the way that we are supposed to as the body of Christ? So today we're going to kind of pull back a little bit and try to remember, from God's view, what is relationship just supposed to be? What is it supposed to look like? And then kind of look in terms of where might we be missing each other in this space? So Ecclesiastes is where we will be the next two weeks. We love this passage. But Ecclesiastes is often attributed to Solomon, but it's actually dated much later than him. Whether he wrote it or not, it's written in the vein of his wisdom, in his tradition. And the teacher writing this is kind of taking this long, hard look at life and trying to figure out what has lasting value? What actually is going to matter at the end of the day? And so this portion that we are in is looking specifically at the issues of people relating to one another. And what we see is that isolation has come from envy and rivalry or from ambition that causes you to make enemies with people instead of friends. Idolatry of self here has superseded the love of community. So now there's tensions and opposition to relationship. Idolizing self always inhibits community. You cannot be self-absorbed while building up the body. You cannot be elevating your own interests while putting other people first. You cannot love one another as fellow image bearers while kind of maneuvering to get things to orient around you. You cannot be consumed with all the areas that you're sensitive while being humble. Idolatry of self in community brings death to your community, and you bring life into community through the death of your self-idolatry. So with that, let's start in verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, in depriving myself of good things? This too is futile, in a miserable task. All right, so these first verses are addressing just the emptiness of striving completely alone. The issue is not just that they're doing something on their own, but there's a level of self-absorption in terms of their motivation for why they think to new, they need to do this all on their own. So, idolatry of it, your independence. Idolatry of achievement where you can take all of the credit. Idolatry of just like not needing anyone else. There's a lot of pride here. This person is trying to surpass their neighbor, rather than be in community with them. The biggest things is you have comparison and competition. Comparison and competition, competition will always get in the way of your relationships. So the competitive urge this verse is saying is what is making the the work the labor completely meaningless. The desire to elevate self over others makes your work with one another completely meaningless. Focusing on competition and comparison with other people in community almost dehumanizes them because you're focusing more on not how they're an image bearer but the sum of what they do and how you can then top that. So verses 9 through 12 try to turn away from this competition, this comparison, and look more towards cooperation and what the advantages are of us doing this together. Verses 9 through 12 are not about marriage. Just lay that out there right away. They're used for marriage a lot. There are most definitely principles in here that can come to fruition in marriage. But these verses just are about relationship in general having one another here in community versus doing it alone. And so the question is going to be, where are the idols here? So verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. So first we see that relationship carries with it reward. Relationship brings rewards. Rewards. This, again, it's not that you don't do it on your own, but this is pushing against where are you operating out of selfishness? Where are you operating toward one another in a way that's rooted in fear, insecurity, greed, and pride? Relationship helps us exchange those fears, those insecurities, those spaces of pride instead for things that are a reward for us. It brings advantages in one way, in helping us fight against our own self-centeredness and fight against our own idolatry. Because when you have people in your business, it's harder for you to hide. That's the good thing about having people up in your business. People that aren't gonna let you get away with it. They know you and they see it. So you have this sanctifying effect that other people can then bring into your life. It also brings reward not just in a strength in numbers, but we need our complementing gifts in order for us to actually be effective. You can be the smartest, most intelligent, gifted person. You're not all the things. You need other people in order to actually, for us to accomplish the work as the body of Christ. Now, if you're a little more introverted, independent type, And this is maybe making you feel a little anxious. You're in good company, okay? There's a little bit of me that's like, yeah, this has been a tough week for me. I'm just gonna say that straight up, all right? I'm like, whose idea was this? (laughs) Right. So, I I just, so much can be easier when we we work alone. That's kind of like the mantra in the back of my mind all the time that I gotta go after. I mean, I was like the kid from middle school on that every time the teacher would say, (laughs) Move your desks into groups? I was like, yeah, no. Like, the worst. Because now it's going to take longer. Now i got to figure out what everyone else's deal is. Now I'm going to have to figure out who, whose weight am I going to have to pull because it's not going to be up to par. Okay? Group work a little anxiety-inducing for people like me. But God, in this syllabus called life that he writes, says, yeah, it's mostly going to be group work most of the time. This group work here bears more fruit, has more advantages than what we can do alone. And yeah, people are a lot. But people are a lot because you're a lot. And I'm a lot. I just... But God knows that. God knows more than you how much they are. And he still says, no, this is how I'm going to design it. This is how I'm going to set it up so y'all can be the most effective. This is how y'all can bring me the most glory. So we demonstrate his image when we set aside our idolatry and we embrace the full value that people bring in community. So here's where you need to check yourself. Who do you view as having less to bring to the table? And what about them makes you think that way? What things about them make you value their contribution less? And who do you think you have nothing to learn from? If there are people that you think have less to give than you, or that you don't need, you have much too high opinion of yourself and a much too low opinion of God's image. God's kingdom has no second-class citizens, so watch yourself where you might be functionally thinking that way. So where do you need to uproot some arrogance and repent because literally the flourishing of community is at stake? So seeing God's design for relationship as a reward, this is the only way for us to embody Christ properly. Verse 10 says, For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Verses 10 through 12, just a to note too, it's this picture of a journey. It's like these, your companions, you're all traveling together, you're all moving towards something together, and it's what's going to happen here when there's an obstacle or an attacker, and what's the difference between facing it alone and facing it together. So here we have a falling. So we have relationship here bringing restoration. The falling phrase here is meant to cover distresses related to the body, the mind, the soul. It covers any kind of falling. And if there's any kind of falling, it only works to our benefit if we have companions with us on the journey, rather than us falling alone. So when there's lapses in judgment, when we cause division, when there's distractions that alter our focus, when our bodies fail us, when our minds fail us, when we lose a job, when we have a financial need, when we're blaming others for our issues, when we have bad theology, when there's just flaws in our thinking, like what Pastor Darrell talked about last week. Any falling. It is only better for you to be in relationship, to have someone else to help pull you back up. And I think sometimes falling can cause us to grasp after people. It makes us want to reach out for help. But I think sometimes falling makes us want to withdraw and maybe you're a little more prone to one than the other. Falling will happen, so it only works to our benefit to be cultivating healthy community all the time, so that when you fall and you need to reach, there's people already there, or if when you fall and you're a withdrawer, like me, okay, you have people in your life that are saying, I'm not going to let you do that. If you're more of that type, I am telling you, hang on to the people that God brings into your life who are trustworthy and truth-tellers that are not going to let you go away, not going to let you hide. Sometimes those are my least favorite people, but those are the people that I know I need the most. So hang on to them. It can be so easy to want to withdraw when we fall of our own doing. I think because of our self-idolatry, We don't want others to see us as less. We don't want to admit what we might be capable of. And we might be unwilling to repent or even see where we need to repent. Being unwilling to repent or be honest about yourself, that's you idolizing yourself. So when you fall and stay down in that way, you're dragging other people down with you. A refusal to repent in community is a dragging other people down with you. I think sometimes we isolate ourselves when we fall because we don't totally understand what's happening sometimes. It can be hard to invite people into that space if you're sort of reeling. So with that too, not all of you is meant to be accessible to all in community. You don't owe that to everyone, and I actually think it can be unwise (laughs) to just all the time bear all the things. But this is also part of why we need different kinds of people that we are constantly cultivating community with because there are going to be different strengths that are there for you when you fall because of different reasons, if that makes sense. There are a lot of different people in this room that I have reached out to for very different things, and I think that there's a strength in that. There's a strength in having that kind of a circle. And this is where we can get tripped up when we have spaces of difference because we're not then always good at seeing where other people have fallen or being seen by others. We miss others also when we become so self-consumed that we think our space is the most challenging one. Life is a lot. It's legit overwhelming. But can you not empathize with the challenges faced by other people whose lives are so different from yours because you are just in your own head so deep? Or do you idolize so much what you don't have that you're romanticizing what other people have as the answer to your problems? It is so easy for us to idolize this ideal and then think that our immediate problems are much more difficult than everyone else's. And when we do that, we are hindered from being able to properly pull one another back up when we fall. I'm telling you, when I'm falling, I am not going to the people that are looking at me like my life is a piece of cake. I'm just not. And I'm sitting on this one for a while because this issue of comparing is a very common conversation I have in our church community. So listen, there are challenges and struggles that come with marriage. There are concerns and issues that come with having children. There are problems and hardships that come with being single and not having children. And there are unique struggles, additionally, that kind of come into play for the different combinations of those things and the experiences that lead into our lives looking the way they do. It is all hard, but in different ways. And we fracture our community when we keep treating each other like theirs is easier than ours. I mean, your kids are making you crazy today. Well, you're going to have someone to take care of you when you're older, and I'm going to be at the mercy of the state. So, I mean, legit. Like, so, just like there's different advantages, there, there are different challenges. I mean, this is stuff you got to think about, right? But I mean, with that, you know, holiday season is approaching. Some of you are facing down the challenge of, you have to deal with another person's family business. It's tough. But then other, others of you in this space, you're constantly having to walk into toxic family space, completely alone. So instead of us always playing this grass is always greener a game, we got to get more mature in acknowledging that no matter what your life looks like relationally, you have your own laundry list of actual and potential challenges and worries. So listen better, quit trying to one-up each other. It always makes me think of a Penelope on SNL. Anytime I see this happening, you know, Kristen Wiig has this character where she's like, anything anyone says, she's one-upping them. I mean, don't be Penelope, okay? (laughs) Don't try to like, she's idolizing her struggle, but that's what we're doing when we're trying to one-up one another all the time. So, what's hard is hard. What's easier is easier. When you need people, you need people. But not everyone has it easier than you. It really hurts my heart when I hear people speak in our community, literally, well, you're lucky you don't have this. That posture is not for this space. That's destructive. And that renders you unable to help each other up. The second you say that to someone, you're not trustworthy to come alongside them. Your competitiveness and comparison have rendered you unable to be that person there to help. So, where can you consider more where your brothers and sisters are having struggles that are different from yours because of what their life looks like, and how can you instead hold space for that, affirm it, and consider, where can I fill in the gaps there because of what I do have, and how can you be open to receiving that from others when you need other people to fill in your gaps? I know I've joked with a few of you in this room about, like, I provide you opportunity for singles ministry when I need heavy things hauled, and I've been sick for days, and I need food left at my door, and those kinds of things. But I've also bailed a lot of you out with your kids, yeah. and I also have like had the flexibility. Okay, side note: I do not have more time. Okay, that's an, that's one thing. I have to get treated like I have all the time in the world. I fill up my time. What I will say though, I legit have more flexibility. And I have more margin in terms of where I can determine my energy goes. So I use that to y'all's advantage, whether you know it or not. But I don't have more time than you, so I just feel like I need to say that. So, but I have more flexibility. But all that to say, y'all fill in my gaps, I fill in yours, this is what we do. But you got to listen to each other and have compassion for each other and give each other dignity in affirming where their struggles are. This is how you are the companion that lifts another up along the way. Verse 11. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? So here we have relationship brings rest. This is comfort and safety on the journey. This is meant to be this warm and welcoming empathy, this willingness to be open and vulnerable, a showing up for one another when the coldness and the darkness of night is approaching. This is us having humility and bravery and the willingness to get close. This is also you being a safe space for others. People in your community, again, they don't owe you intimacy. You need to do the work of being humble and trustworthy and handling what others choose to share with you with a lot of care and compassion. Are you defensive, quick, and self-centered when people are open with you? Are you good at turning it back on yourself? Or are you gentle and caring? So this is one where you need to think both in how you give and how you receive. When we idolize ourselves, we are an impossible place for people to find rest and comfort. Because you cannot be obsessed with yourself while fully seeing someone's value and worth And if you don't fully see their value and worth, you're not a safe place for them to find that comfort that they need. So, this made me think of... All right, so a friend of mine from one of my worlds past, moved a lot, she um, has been dealing with cancer this year, like this weird, rare form. And we don't really have any other mutual friends anymore, so it's just one of those things I've been following her, thinking about it on my own. And then... I mentioned it to someone, because she was going through her last round of chemo. It's like, yeah, I have this friend. First question is, is she married? Does she have kids? And then when I say no, the response is, well, that's good. Okay, I know what is meant by that, but instantly I thought, man, I hear this all the time. Like, all the time. Like, it's more tragic, always, when someone is going through stuff like that, if they have children. And I get how that's hard on the unit, but that communicates a lot when we constantly focus on how that's more of a problem, more of a struggle. Now, I also stopped for a moment, though, because I remember saying something to Pastor Daryl, which he doesn't remember, which is good, um, almost in reference to myself in that way. And so... Like, it would be better if, like, something like that happened to me than someone else. So you kind of, like, you internalize that. And there's a level to which I still mean that, but his response was, like, gentle rebuke-ish, as far as what I remember. But my other, my real response was listing off the additional host of struggles she's had because she doesn't have family. So, you know, she lives in a major U.S. city, her family is 1,000 miles away because she doesn't have like, a husband or family near her. She has to depend on friends who are young professionals, who don't get time off for friends. So she's taking a cab to and from chemo. Boyfriend breaks up with her mid-chemo, whole other thing. So she's mostly dealing with this completely alone. Again, if she's married or not, there's a huge host of struggles but they're different, and we can't diminish one and make one seem better. It's it's a struggle either way. Challenges exist. So we can't place less value and worth on someone just because of what we perceive to be maybe not the fullest relationship status. So it may seem a little dramatic, but this is this thread leading into this question of what does make your life more significant before God and others? because how you feel about that affects how you can be there for one another in community. So what is more godly? Being married or not being married? What is more holy work? Giving of your life for those who share your name or giving of your life for those who don't? And I mean, our answer should be yes. (laughs) This is often also reflected in how often in the church... Single people are often like the worker bees. They are often the ones filling in the gaps. And they feel like they're supposed to shoulder that burden because they know it's probably easier for them, and they don't have as much right as other people to say they can't. Do you know how much trouble our children's ministry would be in if our single people weren't serving? We would lose half of the class schedule. And that's even when we have had parents that aren't serving. We presume upon that and do not acknowledge the incredible sacrifice and value that is there. So all of that to also say, single people need to be protected also from draining themselves on behalf of other people. Especially because not, we're not allowed the same grace to say no. And to not protect them in this is really unloving. Unloving. A uh, close friend of mine with small children told me recently about she's like, you know, it's too bad you don't have kids because they're a great excuse to get out of things. She's like, when, she's like, when, when you say I can't come because I'm a kid, no one questions you. And she was saying this because she was watching me try to be like, how do I say I can't show up for this? She's like, too bad you can't just say the kid's sick or something. But for us here to have safety and security in one another so we can find true rest and comfort We, without batting an eye, should not functionally think one person in any way related to this has more value or worth. So we need to be really leading with grace and empathy. So to find out if you feel that way, think. Who do you perceive, again, to have it much easier than you? Why have you put that on them? And where may they actually need you to help them find a space of rest and comfort? Verse 12. And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So here we have relationship brings resilience. This is addressing the benefits of community when enemy attacks. The cord of three strands is not... Man, wife, and Jesus, okay? Not to not to burst y'all's bubble, because I know like at weddings they do the braiding thing now. Does anyone see that? Yes. Okay. So it wasn't just me. So instead of like the like, candle lighting or the sand pouring, they like braid something. Like you buy something on Etsy with this verse. And then when you have like the random relatives sing the song, like they walk up and they braid this cord of three strands. It's not just the white people thing, right? I mean it feels like, it like a it feels like it might be, no, okay, no, all right, okay. So, it's not just about marriage, okay? Again, it can apply to that. Sometimes this stuff just comes out of my mouth, that's why I'm nervous about being here. Okay. The cord of three strands is meant to be representative of many. Like, three is the top number. Companionship is not just restricted to one or two people. And the more cords in the strand, the stronger it is. Many makes it harder for the enemy to attack you. There is strength and resilience in many by your side, in your corner, as a part of your inner circle. You don't face these attacks alone. We are created and meant to be in relationship with one another in a way that we are providing protection. You are meant to have people watching your back, and you are meant to be watching others. We're meant to be linking arms facing adversaries together. And you cannot seek to elevate and preserve yourself and effectively be in this kind of relationship. We should almost in a way be trying to outdo one another in being able to come to one another's aid. So a question here is, where are you maybe refusing the support and reinforcements that you should be accepting? Have you somehow convinced yourself to always be turning away the help that is offered? Maybe you need to be the one to accomplishment. Maybe you don't want to be perceived as weak. Maybe you don't want people to actually enter in and see who you are and know you. Refusing help from people in relationship where you need the protection, that's pride. It's not humility. This does not mean, though, that you have to take any help ever offered to you in community. Sometimes the people offering help to you, not the right people for you to be letting in. But you need to kind of check yourself when you're stiff-arming people and think, what are my motives here? Is it because I'm thinking too much of myself? I don't need you is often pride. So kind of take a moment there. On the other hand, where should you be seeking to be another cord in the strand for other people? Noting that we should all be kind of taking our turns in community. And you might be in a season where you're needing to take your turn more, but that's what we do. Community is where you show up for other people in our present to help protect, reinforce, and fight back. And we can miss out on how to do that if we're not keeping an eye on each other's lives. So when you're single, you're often asking, right? Right? about people's kids, about their marriages. And I just need to pause and say, our single people in our church are legit. Like, we have gems. They really love the families here at ICON. They show up. But if you're married, if you have children, how often are you asking about someone's livelihood related to them having to handle everything on their own? How often are you asking about how they're struggling financially, having to carry everything on their own? How are you asking about difficult family situations that they're having to face alone, or handling health issues alone, or stress alone? How much are you actually considering what are their discipleship needs specific to where they're at? What is their spiritual health like, and what do they need from me? Because different enemies are going to bear down based on those differences, and people need you to be in their lives when that happens. The enemy does not want us to be intentional here. doesn't want us to be in tune with each other's challenges in our community because he's pretty successful when we're isolated. It's easier for us to be taken down when we've been pulled away or when people are not actually seeing us. So church, it is to our benefit as a whole for all of us to be armed by the knowledge and love we choose to carry for one another, especially those that you maybe have to work at being able to hear and being able to understand. God knows this is work on our part, but for those of us in Christ, we're signing up to do this. So who have you been missing because their life is different? Where has your self-idolatry kept you from being present for those that you were created to be showing up for? You need to do the work. Community isn't where you hang out till people pursue you. It's your job to go after them. Affording dignity to one another when their life is different from ours and creating space for rest and safety and protection requires you to adopt the posture of Christ. And when that happens, that's when our view of community expands, and that's when it becomes family. So kind of in closing, I want to read from Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, um, Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and his mothers and brothers are standing outside, waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, waiting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I want to read this because I think this is often read as like a suggestion. If y'all are getting along well enough or if you're like really feeling it, you can imagine your family to a degree. One of the advantages of the way that I live my life as this like loner wanderer type (laughs) is um, this is my reality. I mean, I've lived away from my family for about 12 years. They're like 3,000 miles away. And I've had like two big moves in that time. And this scripture just, it resonates somewhere deep for me because this isn't just like something in theory. This is my life. Like I have left this incredible trail of people that legit are my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, in all these different spaces. And that's been something that's really beautiful. I think that that's a strength. Now, there's a loss there in what I am missing, right? But that's where we need each other. That's where we need to know where everyone kind of is in this, because there's loss and gain for all of us. And the only way that we fill that in well is when we truly lean into what this is for us to be family not just community. It's a gift, it's a treasure, and this is how God set it up. This is who we are. This is what we gain, church, from setting aside our self-idolatry and not missing each other. This is how we image God together. So be present, show up, do the work, be cloaked in grace and humility and compassion with and for your family and our community. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good design in bringing us together. I thank you that you intended for us to not do this alone, but to do this with each other. And so I ask that you would help us in the spaces where we struggle to see what that is supposed to mean and look like, that not just you would be present, but that you would be present in and through our people here in this space. Help us to see gift and reward. Help us to be able to find rest with each other. Help us, Father, to be a body that is ready to be resistant to the enemy, not just when it comes for us individually, but when it comes for any of us. Father, may we see this as strength. May we lean into this well so that us as the body of Christ truly is able to glorify you. In your name we pray, amen.
2: Every time we come to this table, I'm reminded of something that uh, it's, it's really easy when you're a Christian, when you've been in church for any period of time, or even if you've just been in spiritual environments, your religious journey can exclusively be about you. Oftentimes we'll come in and I want to come to church because there's something I need from God or I want to see him more fully, which are all really, really good things. But we often don't say I want to be a part of a church community so that I can see each other more fully. And every time we come to communion, these are the things that we're supposed to be reminded of. You know, we always highlight the word itself, this idea of communion, this picture of common unity. So it's not a picture of just you. It's not just a picture of, of me supposed to be this picture and also just this truth that we live into that says, I am committing to not only see God well and let that be continually being corrected, but to see each other well. We know this was a problem. We know this has always been a problem. As a matter of fact, that one of the primary places in scripture that we look to to understand communion, it's in the book of first Corinthians. There's a church uh, in, in uh, a city in Greece called Corinth. And it was a Roman occupied city. And, and Paul had been a part of planting this church there. And in writing a letter back, he'd gotten a letter from the church and there were all these issues that they were dealing with. And he writes them back in this first letter to the Corinthians. And in, in this, in chapter 11, he's dealing with their own idolatry. He's dealing with the ways in which they're not seeing each other. And while it may not necessarily be stage of life per se, it was more socioeconomic. There was an issue that was happening there. People would come and this was more than just crackers and juice or wine. I mean, they were having meals and they would come and they would meet together on ostensibly. It looks like a beautiful thing. Hey, we're all coming together and we're having a meal and we're doing church because we're really good at playing church while not realizing how much we overlook each other. And so these folks were coming to church and some people were coming later in the day. And by the time they got there, there was no more food. There was no more wine. There was no more drink. There was nothing there for them. As a matter of fact, people had stopped seeing them so so effectively, sadly, that folks were drunk by the time people would get there to take part in this wonderful feast together. What we know is that likely the people who were the ones that were getting there early, they were socioeconomically in such a position where they could just get there early. They didn't have to work later shifts. So they could get there and say, hey, if if there's not enough food left over for the other folks, for the others, it's okay. We're going to do us but they were playing church. And so Paul had to write them and rebuke them. He had to write them and say, examine yourself before you come take of this. Examine yourself to ensure that you're not taking this unworthily. When we hear unworthily, especially those of us that have been in church for any period of time, almost exclusively your mind goes to, what did I do wrong? Was there something I said wrong? Was there something I did? that I think something wrong? All things that are legitimate, but it shouldn't just be relegated to those issues. It should also be, how am I overlooking my brother or my sister? So, so pursuant to what Jen just said, if there are places where maybe I've just overlooked this person because they're single, or maybe I'm single and I've made assumptions and think they're married, it can't be that bad, and I've overlooked them, what ways have I overlooked them? What ways have I completely not even wondered or cared or asked about where their needs are? This is what we need to examine before we come and partake. We examine individually, and then we examine communally. Because it's not, commun- it's not communion if we're not communal. And so before we come and partake of this, think through this. Pray through this. Say, Lord, first, are you truly who you say you are? Because if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then we really don't have to care about each other. We don't feel this unction to care about each other. If anything, we will care about each other because we arrived at this idea on our own. But if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he's more than just your savior, if he's actually your Lord, then you go, Jesus, you have, you've rescued me. You've rescued me into community with you so that I can be empowered to be in community with others. Jesus, is this true of my heart? Is it true individually? Am I, you know, am I in right community with you? Or is there, are there unrepentant sin? For sure, those are things that I've got to wrestle through as well. But also, what does it look like communally for me? You see, we ought not come and partake of this until that gets done right. So whether it's through a stage of life, whether it's through, uh, uh, whether it's racial differences, whether it's uh, socioeconomic differences, whatever those things are, whatever those idols are that are blinding us from seeing each other well, from loving each other well, that's what we come to. That's what we engage with the heart of repentance. So we do that. We do that work. If that's true for you, If that's really where you are, you're engaging and going, Lord, I see where I am individually with you. And I also see where I am or where I'm not communally. Do work with God right now. Come with the heart of repentance first, a heart of brokenness that says, I see where I miss this. I see where I overlook. I see where I have exalted myself to the detriment of my brother or my sister. And the the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to punish you. I'm here to guilt you, I'm here to shame you. No, I come to to forgive you and to restore you and to empower you to love your neighbor the way I love you. That's the promise, that's the hope. The hope isn't that we're gonna be perfect, the hope is that we will continually be changed. So if that's true for you, then this is your table to be shared with your brothers and your sisters. If that is not true, if either of those are not true, then this is time to not come and fake, to not come and play, to not come and put on a mask. Because ultimately, that's just, you're not seeing either Jesus or you're not seeing each other. And that, why come and partake of something or proclaim something that isn't true? Why not just do the, do the work? Why not, Lord, do business with me here? Let this time be a time where you're like, I, either A, Lord, I'm seeing some areas where maybe you're not Lord. And maybe there's things in my life that prove that you're just not Lord. I love the idea of you being a savior. I struggle with the idea of you being Lord, and I've got to wrestle with that. Or, and, maybe there are times that I I can see even that I'm just, I'm not broken over the fact that I really overlook people. As a matter of fact, I've constructed excuses, built-in rationalizations for why I can overlook the other that are not rooted in anything that is of you. Then let this time pass, or let this time pause You say, Lord, do work in my heart. I'm coming with a heart of repentance. I can't fix it on my own, but I'm coming with brokenness. One of the the key things that makes us trust each other is not our rightness, it's our brokenness. And we trust Jesus to do that work for us so that we're never artificially broken, but we are truly broken. Let this be true of our hearts today. As our volunteers come, I just want to remind you that here at ICON we do communion by the process of Intinction. So what that means is starting in the back and you will come down the middle aisle, uh, you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in either wine or juice as you see fit. The wine will be on your right, the juice will be on your left. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for this Passover meal. This meal, much like we just talked about in 1 Corinthians, they're having this incredible meal together to remember this incredible time that God rescued his people. And Jesus is giving them this fulfillment of that story, showing what the fulfilling message is about his role in this story. And he looks at these folks, this community of people, very different people, some that would be faithful, at some point, many of which would be completely betraying him. And he looks at them and he says, this is my body given for you take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me in the same manner he took the cup he said this cup it's the cup of a new covenant of my blood poured out for the remission of sins take and drink of it jesus says that as often as we do this we proclaim the lord's death until he returns Why are we proclaiming this? Like, why is it not enough to just say Jesus lived or even to just say Jesus died? Why do we have to over and over again remember and proclaim Jesus until he comes back? Because ultimately what we're saying is we are going to miss each other. That's inevitable. I'm going to miss you. You're going to miss me. I'm going to overlook you. You're going to overlook me. I can't promise you that I won't be guilty at some point, nor can you. There's got to be something else I'm hoping in, because otherwise, if your hope is in me, I promise you I'll fail you. If my hope is in you, you need to be able to know. I I can't even expect for you to be able to hold that up for me. There's got to be something else I'm holding on to. What I'm holding on to is this. It's not just that Jesus lived, because he did. He lived this perfect life, a life that none of us could live. But it's not enough to end there. And it's not even just that he died. Yes, he died in my place, paid a punishment for me. Even that, as amazing as that is, that's not enough. There's a lot of people that lived and there's a lot of people that died. There's a lot of great people that lived and a lot of great people that died. There are a lot of people that gave in incredible sacrificing ways. The problem is they are still dead, which means as great as they may have been, they are powerless to rescue you and to save you. So the only hope we have every time we get reminded somebody lets you down, somebody here gets on your nerves, somebody else just really frustrates you, the only thing that keeps you from letting them go, the only thing that keeps you from going, forget them, I'm overlooking them now and I feel justified, is that Jesus is still coming and Jesus is still moving and Jesus is still alive. That tomb is empty, which means the power to change hearts and to change minds and to reconcile is always here. That's our hope. Our hope isn't in our willpower. Our hope isn't in promises we make per se. Our hope is in a resurrected Savior that came to reconcile broken people and relationships back to himself and to each other. That's our hope. So if that's what you hope in, if that's what you trust in, then come, be reminded, be convinced, be convicted, be converted, taste and see that our Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.